Well, if you're like me, it's very easy to slip into routine and forget the profundity of what actually happens at a church on a Sunday morning. We sing some pretty amazing lyrics and pledge ourselves to some pretty weighty tasks. And we come, and what we claim is that God himself speaks to us through his word, and that becomes old hat. But it shouldn't. Um, It's good to remind ourselves from time to time, not only the amazing privilege, but the amazing thing that we do on Sunday morning. We sing to the creator of the universe. We hear from the creator of the universe. And that should have a tremendous impact on us when we do it. If you would stand for our reading this morning, our scripture text comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 5, as we've been doing the last couple weeks. We'll read through verse 9 this morning. Maybe even verse 10, because it kind of completes the thought. So through verse 10. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Father, there are many in our church who suffer with physical ailments. Cancer seems to have infected so many in our congregation. We think this morning especially of Deb Taubert and the lung cancer that they have discovered in her in the short time the doctors have given her. And this is a day of distress when she and her family call to you, and we pray that you would answer. We also lift up Darlene Eidsness, who has recently found news of cancer as well, and we pray your mercy over her. We ask, Father, in each of these cases, and in so many, many more in our congregation, some who have fought with cancer for a very long time, and some who seem to be losing the battle, and some who by your grace seem to have prolonged. In all of these, we pray for your hand of mercy upon them, that their faith would grow, that they would hold fast to you as the God who answers when we call. There are many others in our congregation, too, who suffer with chronic pain, who often forget what it's like to live without ailment. Others see these things, 
and they know that we cry to you, and you do not always respond to us, it would seem, at first, and so we are in distress, and our name becomes a curse to our enemies. But Lord, we know that you do see and that you will act. You have sustained your people. You have not let us be cast aside or fail altogether. But you will raise us up because your people and your son are precious and dear to us. You do not always restore, but you do always Give joy when we contemplate the promises you've given and the future you have secured. For you alone have given us joy. Only you who live forever and ever, who declare the beginning from the end, who have apportioned to us our days, each one of them in their number. You alone who live forever can impart this joy to us. And we gather here this morning asking that you would do so, that you would cause us to be those who trust in your promises, that we would record for a generation to come what you have done. Father, we pray that you would enlighten our eyes this morning to your word, that our hope might grow so that when these days of affliction come, we would have the strength to call on you. The children of your servants dwell secure even now, and their offspring will be established before you. We pray that you would use this morning to do that very thing for us and on our behalf. Open our eyes to your text that we may behold wonderful things from your law, we pray. Amen. Continuing on in 1 Thessalonians, I've said it before, but it is the context we find ourselves in this morning, Paul writes of his thanksgiving to God for the fact of the Thessalonians' faith, for the fact that they are believers, and that dominates from chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to chapter 3, verse 10. And as he is thanking God for their faith, he commends the Thessalonians for their faith. He does that in verses 5 and 6. But from verse 6 to verse 7, he moves not only for their reception of the word and the way it has transformed them, but what they have then done as a result of their transformed lives. So verse 6 into verse 7, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The fact of receiving the word and the manner in which they received the word, which was in imitation of the apostles and of the Lord, resulted in the fact that they became examples to others through their activity of an obedient faith. And we'll spell that out a little bit more as we go along this morning. But what they did was they became a good example, a good pattern for others to follow which is important because personal examples are usually time and place bound. Verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now first, let's briefly establish Thessalonians 
relationship to Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia was the region, the larger geographical area. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. Achaia was a region just to the south. Our land masses that we're dealing with in our context are a little bit bigger, but imagine the United States and Mexico. That's roughly the relationship. In modern-day terms, it is all part of Greece. But to give you some perspective, from Jerusalem to Thessalonica, modern-day Jerusalem to modern-day Thessalonica, roughly the same places, it is a 920-mile flight. That's a long trip. But if you wanted to drive it, it would take you about 1,500 miles because the flight goes over the Mediterranean. Now, Corinth was a city in Achaia, just to its south. That is a 190-mile flight difference from Thessalonica to Corinth. And what Paul is saying is, what has happened among you has made its way down to Corinth such that you have become a sort of an example to those who are 200 miles away. Now, that might not seem all that terribly impressive, but remember that word in the ancient world didn't travel quite as quickly as it does today, right? If you wanted word to go from one place to another, there was one way to do it, by foot. Or we should say more appropriately, by mouth, right? Um, By mouth, which could happen over land, on foot, or over sea, by ship, both of which are quite difficult and treacherous. But they became known as an example to other churches in the wider region because of their joyful reception of the apostles and of their reception of the word despite tribulation. Now the Lord did, of course, give them some advantages that not every church enjoyed. Thessalonica was a port city. It was one of the main ports for the entire region of Macedonia. So many ships were coming in, many goods were coming in, many travelers were coming in. And many were going out. They were a hub, not only of economic commerce, they were a hub of news, worldwide news at that, not just local. So as a major port city, they had ships coming in, and from their city they had major roads going in almost every direction imaginable. And so, simply because of where they're located... They had what we might call a strategic location in becoming examples. But notice that the Thessalonians didn't become examples because they were strategic about it. They just happened to have that in their favor. The Lord situated them in that way. They became examples because of what they did with their faith, not because of their own scheming. They were also able to become examples because of the similarities that they shared with the world around them. For example, Thessalonica shared with everyone in their region the same religious worldview, which is they came out of a cultural religious worldview that made assumptions, the same assumptions across the board. We live in a day where the religious assumptions are not always shared exactly the same way. In their day, virtually everyone believed in a pantheon of gods. The Jews were the only exception who believed in one God. Everyone else believed in many. And there were a lot of other things that went along with that as well. For example, and this ties into a shared political situation, 
the religious cult of the day of emperor worship. They were all part of the Roman Empire. They all shared the same political figureheads, the same Roman laws. Many of those things all went together. They also shared a relatively similar geographic and economic situation as the world around them. And so there were a lot of things they had in common. And so they could become an example to many of the churches around them. But that was not only shared with Thessalonica. That sort of thing was shared with the entire Roman Empire. And notice how the verse goes on in verse 7. Verse 8 For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now, we imitate those that we normally have a personal relationship with, but the word can be broader than that, and it certainly is broader than that. The Thessalonians themselves imitated other churches. So if we jump down to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14... Paul commends them for following the example of other churches and the most famed of churches at that. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And how did they become imitators of them? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, in particular, we would have a difficult time following the Thessalonians' example. And in some particulars, very few, but in some particulars, they had a hard time following the example of the Judeans as well because they were not primarily persecuted merely by the Jews. These people were persecuted by Roman Gentiles, whereas those in Jerusalem and in Judea were primarily ostracized by the Jews. But in general, in general, we can definitely not only follow the Thessalonians, but they can in turn follow the Jews. In attitudes, in patterns, and in priorities of life, we can follow and we can in turn set an example. Let's put it simply this way. How many of you have ever had to fend off being kicked out of a synagogue? We don't face that. Some of the Christians in Thessalonica did. All of those in Judea did. So there is a particular in which we are not able to follow. But in general, we can suffer among our countrymen the same way they suffered among their own. And the reason we can do that is because the ministry of the word is not bound. Verse 8 For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The way they received the apostles in the gospel and what we saw last week was the whole counsel of God as the word made them worthy example for others. But the reason they were an example is because the knowledge of their faith and the content of their faith went out from them. They evangelized the area, and there were even members of their own church that accompanied Paul on mission as well. Acts 20, verse 4, 
This is given to us. So Pater the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied Paul. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy. And then he lists more of the Asians. The Thessalonians were zealous, we might say, in evangelism and missions. God's word not only found a welcome home among them, they also became a sort of base of operations for sending out missionaries and well. In fact, the word in verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, that word sounded forth is drawn from the imagery of a thunderclap or a trumpet whose sound just entirely fills the air. That is what has happened from Thessalonica. The word not only came, they sounded it out in such a way as you couldn't miss it. You couldn't miss the word because it simply filled the air because of the activity of the Thessalonians. Now remember, as a port city, they were a people accustomed to dealing with strangers coming in, strangers going out, dealing in merchandise, and of course, talking about what's going on in the wider world. They simply had to talk. It's all they had to do. And from where they were, the word carried. But all they had to do was talk. It's pretty simple, right? You're used to using your mouth. Use your mouth. And the word of the Lord goes forth. Now, if the Thessalonians were shy about their faith, do you think that they would have received any trouble? First Thessalonians 2.14 You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now jump down to chapter 3. And look at how Paul discusses the trouble that they found among their countrymen. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, your brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. What afflictions are those? Those are the afflictions of chapter 2.14. The afflictions that they suffered from their countrymen as a result of sounding forth their faith. For you yourselves know, continues in verse 3 of chapter 3, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. That's what Christians are expected to face. What prevents us from sounding forth and filling the air with the word of the Lord? I have plenty of excuses at the ready. Just give me the occasion, I'll pull one out. But usually it's something along the lines of well, it feels a little awkward. I didn't, I didn't know how to approach the situation. Sometimes it is, I just felt awkward, I, I didn't know. Or simply, I was afraid to do it. But in each of those cases, we are left entirely without excuse. If we're ill-prepared, what advantage do we not have to be prepared 
What is lacking in opportunity for us to become prepared? If it's awkwardness, why should speaking about the thing we say we're most passionate about in the entire world be an awkward topic of conversation? If it's fear, why do we not fear the Lord more than we fear the people that we might displease by talking about religion? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? There's no excuse. Yet I find them. But that we hide our faith is contrary to Paul's commendation of the Thessalonians. And there are two lines here in verse 8 that I want to draw your attention to. And the lines are roughly parallel. The first one, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has gone out. Those are the two lines. So we have in line one, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, and in line two, your faith in God has gone out. We also have the actual contrast of the verse. I don't think the ESV does a great job of reflecting what's contrasted in the verse. Verse 8 I think is better read the way the NASB has it and the way I roughly just read it. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but everywhere. The contrast is not between the word of the Lord and your faith. The contrast is between Macedonia and Achaia and everywhere. That is what is actually being contrasted in the verse. And we shouldn't read too much into that contrast either. The way Hebrew parallelism works, which is certainly what Paul is mentally steeped in, is the second line often becomes a bigger thing. But let's go back to this little idea about the word of the Lord and our faith. Are they the same or are they different? The ideas are certainly overlapping. But I think there is a distinction. And here, here's where I would understand the distinction to be. The word of the Lord is the content of our faith. Our faith is the experiential reception and transformation by that content. And faith becomes the vehicle through which that content goes back out. Former, the word of the Lord is content-based. The latter is an experiential reception of that content. Now, your experience and my experience and the experience of the Thessalonians and those of the, Jude, uh, the Jews, Judeans who became Christians, all of those differ from one another. But one thing remains the same. It's the content The word of the Lord never changes no matter where you are. This was really brought home to me one day in a seminary class. It was actually a class in missions of all things. The question came up, must one believe in the virgin birth? Is that a hill to die on in missions? The only people who said yes to that was me and a Nigerian 
All the others in the class said, no, that's not a hill to die on. Me and a Nigerian. How is it that I have more theologically in common with a Nigerian than I do an American? It's because the word of the Lord doesn't change. Wherever you go, the content remains the same. What we promote is not our faith in the way Americans think of our faith. What we promote is the nature of reality the way God has revealed it. The object and the content of our faith is what we reveal. So when we spread the gospel, our faith is the vehicle through which it goes, but what we take is the content of the gospel. And the fact that we believe it is simply assumed. This is important because not only are we taking a content out, we, as those infected with that content, take it out. And what is spread is not people or experiences, it is content, the content of the faith. I think this helps explain a passage that often seems a little difficult for us. Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. This is a passage I think we're familiar with, but I'm not sure we always understand it as good as we could. Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Satan, expelled from God's courtroom because of Christ's victory on the cross and resurrection, comes to intensify his war against humanity. That's verse 10. He's been cast down. And in fact, in verse 12 and beyond, Woe to you who dwell on the earth, for Satan knows his time is short. But in verse 11, they, they have conquered him. That is a reference back to the brothers, or we might just generalize that and say Christians. In verse 10, The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Blood of the Lamb. All God's saving graces purchased and applied by the blood of Christ. The word of their testimony. Their act of witness to God's saving work and word. That's their testimony. The word of their testimony is not primarily about how they came to faith, but about Christ's spilt blood to which they testify. 
This is why. The word of their witness in Revelation and their faith in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8 is not primarily about us. We are an assumption. What it is primarily about is Jesus. That's the testimony. No one ever overcomes Satan by thinking about how they came to faith. We overcome Satan by thinking about what Christ has done and how he's applied that to us. That's how we overcome him, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony, the testimony of not shrinking back in witness, but proclaiming it to the world. Which leads to the second thing. Our determination to remain a faithful witness to Jesus is a prerequisite for glory on Jesus' day. Revelation 11, keep in mind this little bit, they did not love their lives unto death. Let's go back to Revelation 2, verses 3 and 5. Revelation 2, verses 3 and 5. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, which is, as they come to challenge you and afflict you, you remain faithful, but I have this against you, verse 3, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What does it mean that they've abandoned the love they had at first? Well, keep this in mind. Keep the context in mind. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The metaphor switches from sounding forth in 1 Thessalonians, as Paul writes, to the image of light, as John writes. And what he's saying is this. You fail to testify about me and what I have done, I'll remove your lampstand. If you're not going to function as a light, I'm not going to keep you as a light. I will remove you. Consider Revelation 2, verse 10, especially in relation to Revelation 12, 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Remain faithful in tribulation. Revelation 6, 9, something similar. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar... Under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they had borne. Back to the word of God again. They held fast to it and they did so publicly. One of the major themes of Revelation is remaining faithful, clinging to the word of God, promoting the word of God, and continuing to do so through tribulation. Sometimes that obedience and that faithfulness is a silent obedience. Sometimes it is verbal and it is an intentional attempt at advancing the kingdom of Christ. 
But remember this. Obedience is almost never private. Obedience is often and ought to be public. Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 38 But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. The fact of their repentance led to problems for them. For you, but then they actively engaged themselves in works that they otherwise could have foregone. Notice that in verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For we have need for endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That doing what is the will of God in this context, it's a public thing. They had compassion on those in prison. We could easily not do that and claim to remain faithful. Verse 37, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. When people ask, when people people ask why we do what we do, don't be shy. It's that simple. Don't be shy when people ask why we do what we do. And let me give you one very simple example. This has been on my mind a lot. I've been in Deuteronomy for quite a long time now. And so this has kind of been plaguing me a little bit. The Sabbath. One in seven. Given rest so that We might consecrate the day to the Lord. That's the Sabbath. If we felt as constrained in the way we use our time on the Sabbath as we do through the rest of the week, would we look different from the culture around us? Topic comes up all the time when you're at work or when you're talking to other people. What did you do this weekend? It's very easy to say what we did, just the way we chose to spend our time. Sometimes mentioned church, vaguely. Sometimes not. But what if we actually found ourselves as obligated on the Sabbath to devote that to the Lord as we felt five days during the week when we're at work, obligated to be here. I have to do this. And then people ask us, what did you do this weekend? Oh, what an opportunity there would be. What an opportunity that one act of obedience can provide for conversation. That's remarkable. And what Paul is telling the Thessalonians is you lived that way. Not only did you obey, the word sounded forth as you obeyed. That's the commendation. That's the mark that they hit. That is attainable. That's something that we can do. And when we do, that sort of faith 
produces a fame of one sort or another. Notice that there are two things that became well known about the Thessalonians. Verse 3, For they themselves, all of those places that know about you, report concerning us, first, the kind of reception we had among you. And second, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Let's look at the first one for just a moment. The sort of reception we had among you. It was known not only how the Thessalonians received the word, but how they received those who brought the word. I doubt that they made a big to-do of it. They probably did it, I would imagine since Paul's commending them for this, that they did it in a way similar to how he does it for someone else in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to the Romans, I commend you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. I doubt the Thessalonians were saying, you should have seen how we rolled out the red carpet for Paul and Timothy and Silas. I mean, we, we were quite something if you could have seen us. I doubt that's what they did. More likely, I think it was, we received these people because we believed they brought us the word of the Lord. And that is exactly what Paul commends them for later on as well in chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it, what it really was, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And he does slip in that little line there, which you heard from us. Meaning the way they received the apostles was in a way that was worthy and commendable to other Christians as well. The second thing was made known, they made known the effectiveness of the content of the faith in producing a change in them. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This morning we're going to finish up by focusing on one fact. Others knew the experience of the Thessalonians so well that others 200 miles away, by word of mouth, through the telephone game, were able to make an accurate report not only of how they received the apostles, they were also to make an accurate report of the result, at least, of the content of the faith, which I think assumes they knew the content of the faith well enough as well. Notice the word he puts it, turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The content that is laden in there is remarkable. But they knew that. Other churches knew that. Now, in the eyes of some... When we, when we have a faith like that, in the eyes of some, we may become famous because of God's work in us and the transformative effect it has within us and among us. And that's a good thing. In the eyes of most, the faithful will become infamous, as we read in our call to worship from Acts 28. You will remember at the end of that, the Roman Jews say to Paul, we haven't heard anything about you in particular, but we have heard about this faith, this sect 
and everywhere it's spoken against. Now, we want to hear from you ourselves. They, they were fair. They were fair Jews. We want to hear from you ourselves, but they did know this. Everywhere this sect is spoken against. Paul starts behind the eight ball when he meets with, a Thess- with, when he meets with the Roman Jews. He was not on a good foot. He did not have a good name when he introduced himself. Oh, you're one of those Christians. Well, I know where this is going, roughly. I, I know about what to expect. I'll hear, I'll hear you out, but let's face it. Having the name Christian attached to you does not start you off in a good place. But remember Paul's history. What got him to Rome in the first place? Everywhere he went, he'd go to a synagogue and he'd try to convince Jews that the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel had shown up and was crucified and was resurrected. Everywhere he went, that's what he did. Everywhere he went, as we saw last week in uh, Acts, 7, Acts 20, Everywhere he goes, afflictions are going to wait him, but he does it anyway. He eventually works his way back to Jerusalem, relatively scathed, but still alive and still active. When he gets to Jerusalem, there is an uproar because the Jews who are there know who he is and make an assumption about what he's done. So he gets taken in by the Romans, and he asks the Romans, Can I talk to the the Jews again? And the Romans say, Yeah, sure enough. He starts talking to them. They start rising up. And so the Romans haul him away. He gets held in custody for a long time. The Jews plot to take his life. Romans find out about it, transport him further north. Paul waits in prison, makes an appeal. Even though there's no reason for him to be held, he's not released because the guy who is up there, the political figurehead, wants to make friends with the Jews so he doesn't have to deal with uprisings anymore. Paul is held in prison for two years because the Jews make a stink of him. Eventually, he outlives the, what we would call magistrate of the, the place. The new guy comes in, holds him a long time. Finally, when Paul realizes this guy's not letting me out, he appeals to Caesar, makes the long trip to Rome. And what's the first thing he does after he spends two years in prison because of the Jews? He looks for more Jews. Either that's the pinnacle of stupidity, or what we might say insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result, or that's being a faithful witness. Why would Paul go right back to the Jews again? Repeatedly, everywhere he goes, they are the problem for him. And what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians is he tells them, you became imitators of us in receiving the word and you've set an example for other churches because of how the word has gone forth from you. Which I take to be a continuation of the way they imitated the apostles. But who in Thessalonica is actually doing the example setting? I'll I'll word it this way. Was it individuals in the congregation? 
or was it the church, as we might say, as an organization? Who did the example setting? Biblically, I don't think there is a distinction between the two. But I'm going to give you just a little peek at the grammar here. As individuals, they became imitators, sounded forth the word, and gave the apostles a good reception. They, they did all of those things as individuals. Most of the, all of the words in here are plural. Y'all did this. Y'all acted this way. But, as individuals, they came together, they grouped together in a common work from a shared, singular spirit of evangelism and missions, and together they became not examples to other Christians, but became an example, singular, an example to the other churches in the region. This is how other local bodies ought to function, looking to the Thessalonians. This is not a group of individuals doing their own thing primarily. Though they do their own thing when they're in their own place, this also is a group of people coming together, bundling what they have, and projecting themselves in a common direction for a common purpose. Very fortunate. Very fortunate the way the service started. Knowing God and making him known. That's what our church church is about, right? Knowing God, receiving the word, making him known, sounding forth the word. We're not supposed to be cul-de-sacs of biblical knowledge. We sound the word forth. We claim to sound the word forth. Is that reflected in individual and in congregational practice? It means individually we speak, we're active. We might say evangelism. It means corporately, deeply, and as a group, not just some among the group, but the group, y'all, involved in missions and sounding forth the word. Is that what our church is known for? For knowing God and making Him known. It's good for a church to reflect on its own reputation. What's ours? If you talk to other people in Sioux Falls, if they know about us, what's their reputation? What are we known for as a church? If we as individuals or if we as a body wane in our zeal for missions, what can we do about that? Well, there's three things I think that can be done. First, we can try to manufacture it. We say to ourselves, God's commanded us to do it. We should do it. Here's how we can do it. Let's build these programs and off we go. But that's to have ministry without the heart for ministry. The second thing we could do is we could try to manufacture it by focusing on the results of what we have done or what we might do. Many, function, many, many churches function this way, right? We look at results and statistics. We want to have this number of baptisms and this many of conversions, and we try to generate excitement by be a part of something bigger than yourself. 
But both of those are problematic. They both put self at the center. And the self at the center is a real problem. The first one, where we try to create programs and generate excitement, manufacture, as I said, is it focuses on our work and the efforts that we conjure up in the sense of our sense of duty. I'm not saying building programs and things of the like are bad. I'm saying that's not the way to regain a spirit of evangelism and missions. Number two, focusing on our work and its results, that we might be part of something bigger than ourselves, usually means we're comparing that bigger thing to ourselves or we're comparing what we are a part of to something someone else is a part of. And it becomes a game of comparison and measured results. I think the pattern to follow is given to us by the Thessalonians here. Who follow the apostles and the Lord. First, become passionate, joy-filled receivers of the word. That's the pattern. Psalm 99 verses 1 to 3. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise his great and awesome name. There's the reception, the knowledge, and then there's the sounding forth of it. Don's call to worship this morning couldn't have been more on the mark on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. We become passionate, joy-filled receivers of the word, transformed by it from the inside out, and then when we have this glorious vision of God, those who bear his image become much more precious to us. That's the model. That's the way the Thessalonians operated. And though we will no doubt face hostility for it, is it not worth it? Is the saving of souls sounding forth the word and proclaiming the fame and the glory of God, is that not worth these short momentary afflictions? Let's become those who endure it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Holy are you. You are a great and awesome God. Make us those who receive your word insatiably and who, without wavering, sound forth your word, not merely or even primarily that we might be known, but that you and your glory might be known among all the peoples that you might be worshipped. We pray for you to transform us individually and for you to strengthen us corporately that we might pursue these righteous ends for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.